Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of Skylit, Skylight Books' podcast series, where we talk to authors from near and far uh, in, their, in the comfort of their own rooms. Um, today, we are very excited to be hosting Andres Newman in conversation with Chad Post. I'm going to introduce our conversationalists today. Andres Newman was born in 1977 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and grew up in Spain. Newman was selected as one of Granta's best of young Spanish language novelists and was elected to the Bogota 39 list. Traveler of the Century was the winner of the Alfa Gaura Prize and the National Critics Prize, Spain's two most prestigious literary awards, as well as a special commendation from the jury of the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Newman has taught Latin American literature at the University of Granada. Chad Post is the founder and publisher of Open Letter Books at the University of Rochester, a press dedicated to publishing literature and translation, which he founded in 2007. In addition, he runs the 3% website, which receives more than three quarters of a million visits per year and is home to the Translation Database, the 3% podcast, and the Best Translated Book Awards. Welcome, Andres and Chad. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's great to see you again, Andres. Yeah, it's been a long time. This is the only way to, to meet you again. It's a pandemic, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> for the moment, for the moment. We will, have, we will have future ping pong playing times in person again. I do really look forward to it. And thank you very much for having us, Maddie. It's, it's a honor for me. And I really love what you're doing while this madness is, is running. Thank you for, for uh, uh, keeping literature working. <laughs> I'm doing my best and thank you for being here, Andres. All right, so you wanna start us off with a short reading? Yes, sure. This is a small paragraphs on the different laughters from different people coming from this novel, Fracture. I've always thought that the way we laugh reveals who we really are. We can put on a face, adopt a tone, control our gestures, but it's very difficult to laugh insincerely. I've known laughs that are nervous like their owners, tight-lipped laughs that conceal more than they show, or shrill laughs desperate for attention. Some are strangely long-winded and don't want to end, as if masking pain, while others grow gradually louder as they gain confidence. Some are a single burst that cleaves the air before snapping shut like a knife. Others sound rough because they've been through a lot. None of these describe his laugh. Very cool. Very cool. So I think- um, Should I laugh now? Should I laugh now? <laughs> or laugh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> laugh. To do <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> it was a laugh anyway. I have a two-year-old who's experimenting with different laugh styles um, as of late, which is which is very fun. Like maniacal laughs, like naughty laughs, like he's trying out a whole different bunch of laughing laughing options. That's certainly an exercise in a style. It sounds a bit ulipo thing yeah. in childhood. Exactly. <laughs> Gotta figure out what works, man. What works in what situations. Um, one thing I wanted to start with is we should probably, for the sake of anyone 
listening that hasn't read the book yet give some sort of just general overview of, of Fracture. Um, and so the book has like kind of two sex, two parts to it that are interspersed. One is the story of, I want to get his name right, Yoshi Watanabe, um, mm-hmm. who was, who grew up, um, who lost his father in Hiroshima and his, the rest of his family in the bombing of Nagasaki the next day, but he survived um, and, and lived a long life. And the book begins with March 11th, um, 2011, with the earthquakes that led to the tsunami that led to the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster. Um, and so his story takes place kind of in the present, going forward from there, and as he goes to Fukushima to, to, to see what's, what's happening there and to like connect with himself. In between there are four narratives by four women who were involved with his life throughout the career of his whole life. So you get to see his background through these other voices that are being told. And um, I was really fascinated. I've always been fascinated. We've had this conversation about talking to ourselves before um, when you came and spoke in my class and we've talked about travel over the century a bit, but the structures that you use in your books are really interesting to me. And I think they feel very well crafted. And I'm wondering how you came to design this book in this way and what you're trying to, what you think it was accomplishing to have it structured as you, you ended up structuring it. Thank you, that, that's brilliant summary actually. Um, well, I've been always interested in voice and in tone for literature. I don't mean with this or by this that I don't care about plots, this you know, snobbery about, oh, it doesn't matter if you've got 500 pages telling nothing in particular. I'm not that kind of snob reader, but certainly I do think that story and plot usually or very often is a consequence of the search of the voice. Mm-hmm. Like the voice leads you to understand the story you're trying to tell, or in other words, that you can have a plot, a very polished and clear plot, but it will be certainly uh, modified and sometimes drastically changed once you know how the voice sounds. So I've been always fascinated by this. You were talking about exercising, exercising yourself in different laughters. Yeah. And that, in a way, connects with an experience with my childhood doctor that maybe <laughs> helps to understand this, my childhood. Because I changed uh, country when I was a boy, my family exiled um, right after the dictatorship in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And I exiled, my family exiled from one um, country speaking Spanish to some other country who speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I did change of intonation, accent, pronunciation, feeling a foreigner of my own mother tongue. And probably that was a literary experience uh, to becoming suspicious uh, about my own language. So I've been always interested in uh, rehearsing different ways of saying the same thing. So that probably led me to the interest in telling a story with different voices and changing perspective. And in this case, I thought it would be nice um, instead of, you know, uh, instead of describe uh, female characters typically observed uh, from a male point of view, and even worse, explained from a male point of view. I found it interesting to attempt uh, the opposite, like um, a silent man who's remembered, fantasized, and uh, told from strong female perspective. But um, this narrative choice is also a kind of metaphor of how we sometimes find it hard to, to express our most important or most painful feelings uh, without the need of someone else. Like, like a, I suppose that sometimes we need the people we love to learn about our own story. So I find it interesting, uh, this game of a man who is supposed to be at the center of the story, but he barely says a word. Yeah. So all, all the intimate things about him, you need to find them through the people who met him. But these versions of this character are sometimes contradictory. 
So you never know if he, he's been changing through time and space, or he was simply interpreted in different ways depending on who he was with. And I found this very interesting too. When we travel or we meet new people, we rehearse new personalities, right? Like we all feel kind of free when we meet someone for the first time because that person doesn't have a, uh, uh, a preconception about you. So maybe you can try to be funnier than usual or more serious than usual or more risky than usual. So this experience is set in this novel uh, radically because he becomes a fully new person because he changes language, he changes country, and he changes couple every time he emigrates. And finally, it's as well, not only for people, in this case for women, uh, talking about this mysterious character, but they are talking about uh, different ages. And I think that's very important because I'm a bit fed up of this notion of love experience as an adventure for young and beautiful and gleaming people, like all of them taking from Instagram. Uh, I, I prefer to think about love as a form of art. And art takes your own life to exercise yourself in. So what these four women do is telling different love stories in four different ages. Um, so in a way, the whole novel is a meditation of, on the uh, stages and changes of our love experiences while the time goes by. That's really interesting. That, 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 is a, that makes a lot of sense and that does fit really well with what, what I like best about the book. In some ways, is I really like the, the sections with the, the former girlfriends describing him. And because he is, and it, it is, like you say, contradictory, but there's also a sense of like, when it, his parts are being narrated, um, they're, they're very clean. They're very scrubbed. They're very sanitized compared to like the, the, the parts that the women say and like the little things about his anger issues or about like what, what he had and how he did things. Those little flaws are not part of his narrative. They're coming out through the other and you get to start putting together kind of like a 3D puzzle of like what this character is like. And it is, and I think you're right. It's really interesting that he doesn't really speak him of his own past in that way. That it's, it is coming through these other people. And this is linked with another uh, issue, uh, which is um, uh, which the novel deals with, is how we speak about our traumas in general, and how we do communicate them to the people we love. So first of all. The most radical experiences in, in humankind, uh, tragically enough, are difficult to communicate. Instead of being full of words about them, for instance, when people come, come back from war yeah. or from torture or uh, from rape or whatever, violent and horrible thing, instead of having much to say about it, you're kind of blocked. Language uh, is not enough because you have an experience that not many people share with you. So it's as if you have a silent language that nobody can translate. So I was interested in researching the different ways um, how different people in different countries have dealt with this issue. For, for instance, people like my family who were exiled or prosecuted or tortured in my, born, in my birth country. For example, my aunt was tortured and she was finally released. She disappeared and reappeared, thanks God. And she never told about this experience, never described to this to, to, to their family until 30 years later. And she told me for, in order for me to write it. So it took 30 years to share this. I researched, you know, the Spanish uh, Civil War victims, and of course the Japanese victims of the of the, the A-bombs. And I found out that even, even though all those contexts were really different, mm -hmm. uh, both culturally and politically, they shared in common this difficulty with the, the power of words turned into the nightmare or of silence, the impossibility 
to um, share linguistically these experiences with, with the other people. So the way in which the third person narration, narration follows the silent man tries to be as well a symbol for how he cannot tell his intimate or more, most painful story. And so the other people have to do that for him, the people who love him. And secondly, I, I was really uh, thrilled to, to tell a story where a person tries different strategies uh, in, 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 uh, in his couple, in his couples, his, uh, the, the people he lived with. And um, I'm sure we all have had this problem, even though it's not necessarily a really tragic thing, but you have something to hide in your life and you don't know if you should say it to the people you just fell in love with. So this, this guy, Mr. Watanabe, the first of the four love stories, he decides not to, not to speak about it because he wants to be new for her, saying, let's you know, uh, uh, be a, an entirely new man, so I won't share this load with her. And she finds out late and in a bad way, and she gets really angry and she feels betrayed because she's, she thinks, well, if he didn't tell me this, such an important thing of his life to me, he, he was probably lying to me in so many other ways. Yeah. So he says, okay, so I should not hide this. Okay, so the second chance he, felt, he, he falls in love, he says, I'm gonna tell you right away. Yeah. But he finds out that it's a bit too, it feels a bit too violent, a bit too aggressive because the other person says, I don't know if I'm ready to hear this so soon. Yeah. I mean, we don't share intimacy, so maybe you should have waited for a bit longer. So he says, okay, you shouldn't hide it, but you should, shouldn't say it too soon. So the third time he <laughs> meets a woman who has been uh, uh, through a long therapy as is very usual in my country, in Argentina, everybody gets a, gets a therapy. We are obsessed with that. My parents have been there for 15 years. <laughs> it's a kind of second pathology, the pathology of researching your pathology. So um, it's a meta, meta pathology. So he, for the first time, meets a person who wants to know more than he wants to share. Mm -hmm. So she's constantly saying, tell me more. And how did you feel? And he, he, and he thinks, well, maybe this is a bit too much. So he learns, I shouldn't say too much, but I shouldn't say too little about this. Mm -hmm. So the fourth time he, and the last time <laughs> he, he arrives to the fourth love story when he's old, he's now trained in sharing his story. He feels more open, but uh, he meets this Spanish woman who is not that much in therapy. Actually, she hates therapies. <laughs> so every time he tries to raise the issue, the topic, she says, oh, forget about it. Don't be obsessed with your trauma. You're going to be repeating it on and on. So he said, okay, so I should remember it and not hiding it, but not sharing it too soon, but not sharing it too much, but not sharing it too little. So what he learns is you won't always find the right time and the right way to share this. So the novel is about how to collect the pieces of the secrets we hide and how to share them with the people we love. That's really interesting. I like related to that, um, because there is like there's there's so much trauma that's involved in like uh, as a, like a national trauma for uh, Hiroshima, and then there's also like the trauma that came from the earthquake, the tsunami, and the power plant implosion. How did you get interested? Why did you end up writing about this particular character? How did that come to be? It's such a global novel. It's like if, if someone like said like, oh, here's a book by an Argentine writer living in Spain about a Japanese person. You'd be like, wait, what? That seems like <laughs> it's kind of like that. So I'm curious how you, how you got obsessed with this particular moment and this character and how that came to be. And also related to that, like how much research did you have to do to be able to reconstruct this? Because it's really in depth. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was a hard job. Um, 
well, there's first of all, there's my own displacement at play, of course. Mm-hmm. So I was searching for a character even more migrant than myself, to, you know, to observe this kind of issue from the distance, both culturally because he's from a faraway country, and I think that narrative makes sense because you can see observe yourself from the distance. That's why we invent stories because it's a distance system to to just like to look at yourself at the mirror. You need to step back, right? Otherwise, you your 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 uh, breath will um, cover the 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 mirror. So so the, the same reason the, the same uh, the same reason why we need uh, stories. So on the one hand, it, I was searching for for a kind of a super migrant fictional character, mm-hmm. and this man really do travels because his job forces him to change. Uh, office and countries uh, a few times and even languages in his life which led me to one of my favorite topics again which is translation yeah he needs to be constantly translating his emotions to languages he doesn't speak very fluently so he needs to work with a gap not only cultural gap but but linguistic gap but uh, you know um i i've been always obsessed with japan since I was a child, you know, the movies, the, the uh, I don't know how to say this in, in English, but anime or manga yeah. or whatever, when I was a child, then I fell in love with the Japanese cinema. And then finally I, I arrived to the books and I'm really fond of Japanese books. So there was this in the background, like my love for Japan, like many years ago, like playing ping pong and loving Japan when I was a child. Yeah. And then many years passed and I, I learned two things about Japan that really struck me. First, first of them, I read about a man called um, um, Yamaguchi, Tsutomu Yamaguchi, who was, and this is really, truly incredible for me, who was a survivor of both atomic bombs but I mean, unlike my character, he was in Hiroshima doing business. Mm-hmm. He survived the bomb in the, you know, in the August 6th, 1945. He was supposedly lucky enough to get a train because incredibly the train, the trains resume uh, their, their travels like a couple of days after the bombs. That's a summary of what Japan is. Yeah. You drop a bomb and the trains go back at work two days later. So yeah. he, he managed to catch one of those trains to Nagasaki where he lived, thinking he was safe at last at home, trying to describe this thing that didn't exist or had, had, a, or had a narrative because nobody knew what the A-bomb was. Yeah. So he was trying to describe to his boss what he had just witnessed and a second bomb hit him and killed his boss and his family, but he survived again. So in three days, he survived two bombs. To top this all, Chad, he lived for 90 years. Wow. So he was the closest to immortality that humankind can meet, surviving two atomic bombs and living almost a century. So this man, who to me was like a kind of fantastic character, like a fictional character, but he existed. He died wisely enough just a few months before the Fukushima accident. So he didn't see the repetition of history. Mm -hmm. So when I saw the Fukushima accident, immediately I thought, what would he have felt and thought he had witnessed the repetition of history. So I invented a character who do, who does witness the repetition of history, so needs to reread all his memories through this. But you know, when the earthquake happened in Japan in March 11, I read that the axis of the planet shifted by a few centimeters, the whole axis of the planet. 
And I thought, isn't this a perfect metaphor of how we are hit by what happens elsewhere? We usually live as if we don't care about the other countries and then we're suddenly in stuck in a pandemic that started in China and by turns are hitting the whole planet. Think about climate change or extreme pollution. Everything that matters cannot be divided geographically. It's just about our planet that we share selfishly. So I thought that these this nuclear tragedies really show you how it's pointless to divide you know, territories. Take Chernobyl, Chernobyl, for instance. You know, the, the, the worst part was for uh, Belarusia. And they didn't even have nuclear, nuclear power centers. Yeah. But they were more affected. So, so the, the, the sea doesn't belong to anyone in particular. The air doesn't belong to anyone in particular. So the novel, in a way, is about all the borderless forces that drive our life, you know, energy, economy, fear, and of course, love. Yeah. So I was interested, you know, in a character that was bit by bit covering the whole planet with some pretext. And this pretext is, you know, the, the technology company he works for. That's really interesting. So um, I think this is a good point for you to read a couple more, more passages. Yeah. Sure. In fact, uh, I could read maybe a paragraph that covers this topic of, of traveling too much until you don't know where you belong. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce a few of these, but it will be for your amusement anyway. With his accumulation of comings and goings, transfers and moves, Mr. Watanabe developed an emotional ubiquity. Each of his emotions was, partially at least, always somewhere else. He had started to feel in harmony. This ruthlessness wasn't confined to space. Intimacy with his loved ones became problematic. He no longer knew how to be with anyone undividedly. No sooner had he attained an instant of fulfillment than half of him was already envisaging his next move, going over travel arrangements, planning tasks in distant places. Nor did making those journeys alleviate his restlessness. His other half, no less sincerely, longed for the refuge of home and to lounge about in pajamas on Sundays. Very good. Very good. I love this. I love your writing. I love this book quite a bit. It was it was very trippy when I started reading it because I got home from uh, being overseas on March 15th and, on Mar and opened it up and started reading it. I was here alone, self-quarantine style. And the first thing that happens is like March 11th, you know, there's this earthquake and he's like, can't get toilet paper. And it's like, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know that I'm ready for this, especially because March 11th this year was when they announced that it was a pandemic. When Who announced That's that it was, it's like a cursed date. Yeah. I, I do hope, yeah, you're right. And, and, and the other day we were talking that in March 11th, there was as well the bombings, the bombs in Madrid. Yep. And it was, of course, exactly six months uh, before the anniversary of the 9-11. So it's a kind of a round, horrible date, uh, March the 11th. But at the same time, I was talking with a friend trying to, to make a more optimistic approach that if this fucking date works just like the virus, I'm sure it will be, it will get some kind of immunity because so many horrible things happen in this date that nowadays the safest days, date ever should be March 11 because <laughs> nothing else can happen to that day. This is like a Borgesian sort of logic of like, if, if you can envision exactly what will happen, it can't happen because you've already envisioned it and things. Exactly. So if someone tries, you know, to point me with a gun someday and it's March 11, I will say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> there this, is, this is too unlikely to happen. So please go away and, <laughs> and come back 
in a more likely, in a more plausible date, please. <laughs> there, that's perfect. There's, you know, ironically, um, so your book came out here in the States on May 5th, um, which is the same exact date that we brought out um, one of your country women, uh, Sarah Mesa's 4x4. Very fine um, writer. Very fine yeah, writer. Yeah, and she's spectacular, and the book's spectacular. And it was weird because up until that was coming out, we'd been talking about it as being sort of like a Shirley Jackson meets Jeffrey Epstein sort of book because it's about like caging people. There's lots of metaphors that worked for, um, that related to like the Epstein story for that book. The second that this COVID things happens, all of a sudden everyone's in lockdown, this book takes on a wholly different interpretation of like in any, in four by four is all about being in a space and what the power structures are within that space. And by walling yourself in, you don't eliminate that. You don't save yourself. You put yourself in a position where there can be more, more power things. And so when I started reading this, when I got back into it and really like went into it, it's weird to be reading this through that new lens. And I wonder if you, how you think as a writer that like you wrote this without COVID being a thing and then COVID comes and there is something that like resonates, that it resonates with that as like things have been fractured, things are broken. There's like the way that people are processing this trauma, which may not be the same as like a nuclear bomb trauma, but it is a trauma for a lot of people and gives a sense of like, how do you, how do you go forward? And like you say, like Japan had the trains running in two days, the tsunami like killed 18,500 people, but yet like there were so many things in place that that could have been a much worse number that they are, that Japan is very much geared towards like preparation and to be able to go ahead and go forward and process what's happened. And I wonder I just wonder, um, for your perspective, from having worked on this for a number of years and then having it come out in this weird moment in English and how it gets reinterpreted, how that, if that's changed the way that you think about your own book. No, you're totally right. Actually, um, when the, the confinement began, a few people began tweeting the lines where the character of Fracture is trying to buy toilet paper and it sold out. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's true, of course, I wasn't thinking about the future, but I think that if we closely observe the past, we do get the keys, the secrets for, for the future. Um, and, um, and, and, well, you mentioned Borges, and in a way, you know, Borges was a bit against this idea of overacting your national tradition, you know, like... It's a bit like writing for the tourist thing, mm -hmm. like saying, hey, we are gauchos, we are La Pampas, we, we sing tangos, and please don't move from that frame because I will get lost, you know? Yeah. So, so the culture, the national culture as a postcard, so to speak. Um, and Borges actually was one of the first ones to, to try to refute, refute, refutate, I don't know how to say this in English, by the way, uh, yeah, you got it. Refute, refute, refute. This, yeah. uh, thank you. Um, Borges was much better at English, by the way. Um, well, thinking about this, Borges was supposed to read the Quixote first in English. Well, you know, he was raised in a house where English was kind, almost a native tongue. This is why, and he said. I don't believe this is true, but it doesn't matter because it's a, it's a good story that he read the Quixote first in English and he loved it a lot. And when he found the original, he found it very badly translated into Spanish. <laughs> so, so this funny anecdote, no, regardless it is true or not, uh, summarizes how he was mistrusting the two folk essential national identities, right? So um, he said that the Latin American feature, well, he said the Argentine feature, but I would go wider. One of the Latin American features for writing is uh, feeling that maybe the English literature or Shakespeare or the French realistic novelist or whatever belongs belong to our tradition because our tradition is shorter and, and younger. And we've been colonized for so long that, that we uh, feel that elsewhere there are things that uh, made us too, and we've got lo loads of immigration going. So uh, half my family came from Europe, uh, and, and, and now we 
got, went back to Europe. So what I mean is that really this playing with the global and the local constantly, I, found, I find it a very Argentinian thing to do. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, it's true that um, this pandemic not only will generate a bit too much of books, a bit too much of narrations or, and movies, but more importantly, will reshape our memories, yeah. will lead us to reread all what happened, to understand how we finished here. And this is even a political thing because, you know, all the conservative people is saying, oh, the virus is democratic. It can kill you no matter you're black or white, you're rich or poor. That's not true, obviously, because if you are rich, you have better, better doctors. If you rely on public healthcare system, you will probably, you are more likely to die. So we, even from a medical point of view, we need to understand why our healthcare system was so bad right before the pandemic happened. So both narratively, politically, economically, we will need to think what will happen to all the people who are without a job in in America. You know, dozens of millions I've read now without the job, meaning without a healthcare system. So, 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 uh, maybe this is what we feared when we were discussing the topic of whether the public system should be stronger or not. So the most important thing is not only the future, but, but the new meaning that the past will, will acquire after this. That's, that's what art does, right? That's why we still read the Greeks or the, or the Latin, I mean, Latin Rome <laughs> uh, authors. Like because the, the past, well, I think that uh, Italo Calvino said that a classic, a classic book is a book that never finishes to say what the book has to say. And that's perfectly true for tragedies. The first, very first quote in, in, in my novel comes from the great Polish poet. We can add that to the list. And to top it all, a Polish poet. And, <laughs> and, and he says, if something exists somewhere, it will, exist, it will exist everywhere. If something exists somewhere, it will exist everywhere. That's a perfect definition for COVID-19. Only this is a poem from more than half a century ago. Yeah, that's very interesting. <clears throat> very interesting. There's another question I was going to ask you is, um, well, one thing that you remind me as you're talking about that and the global, local, the idea of like national writings as being sort of travelogues or, or like postcards or, you know, for the tourists is that you've always resisted that. Like traveler for the century, traveler of the century is from different point of time, different place. It sort of reminds me of like the crack group from uh, the like 90s, uh, mid 90s in Mexico that were, were adamantly like, we're not going to write what's expected of us for Mexican fiction. We're going to write about the rest of the world and be more global than that. Um, and I was, I was, curious I forget what my point was without that but I was curious about who your who's influenced you in like you're thinking about aesthetics and writing and literature like who are your idols that you look up to and that have freed you to like not write that sort of that sort of literature hmm. well um to start with I'm not at all against um writing about my uh, closest community and I've done that a few times You've got a couple of books coming about that. We cannot talk much about this, but I mean, I love, you know, like local small stories and I've written at least two novels about my Argentinian roots. So I don't mean I think writers shouldn't write about that. Much on the contrary, I love to read and write that. But I find it a bit ethnocentric, you know, in a subtle way to say, hey, leave Shakespeare for the serious white Anglo-Saxon guys, you know? So just do your talk about your people, whoever they are, and leave us, you know, the Greek classics for the people who are entitled, you know, for it. So in a way, it's not allowing someone from a distant country to talk about what you think is the canon. Mm-hmm. So demol- demolishing the canon is not only, I think, about expanding it, making it broader, and less 
uh, WASP, you say? Yeah. Yep. Not only that, which is of course fundamental, but as well is, I think, understanding that maybe a Mexican Chicano person has read Shakespeare better than you. That can happen. In fact, Borges kind of rescued a few so-called minor writers from the British tradition when they were not very highly regarded, you know, like Kipling, Stevenson, the Quincy. You know, in the beginning of the 20th century, they were not the top authors in the British tradition. So kind of Borges gave them back to the British readers to say, hey, they were great. Didn't, didn't you read them closely? So, so he kind of changed their own tradition. And, and, and the other way around, of course, um, we've got this Polish guy, Gombrowicz, who came to Argentina and changed our entire national tradition, not even writing a single word in Spanish. Yep. He needed translation, so he kept on writing in Polish language for decades in Buenos Aires. And when he left, our literature had changed and he didn't even need to, to, to learn our language. So that can happen all the time and it does. And, um, and I think of all the people who, and this is my answer to, to, to your question, the people who influenced me the most probably were among many others, the people who had to change frame or language drastically. Um, and, um, and so, so I'm really interested in, you know, the cases like Conrad or Nabokov or Beckett. And at the same time, I'm really interested in um, Argentinian uh, women poets uh, from the dictatorship. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there's a kind of a macho official uh, history of how the resistance was, you know, all, all, all the, the people with the guns fighting against the dictatorship. Yeah. And there were, by the way, women among them as well. But it was mainly uh, a very straight male thing. And um, so, so uh, my, my, my wife did a, a PhD on Argentinian uh, female poets of the period. And she found that they were using symbols in a very different way. For instance, they took um, the very much supported theory because it comes from, from a from um, old times that the carnival um, was a kind of liberating way of um, transforming your identity. Like wearing a mask is a way of freedom. Yeah. Uh, car carnival as a way of transforming things. This has been like a cliche in the literary theory for, for many years. And it comes from the Russian Bakhtin, the yep. theories. And my wife, and I learned a lot from her, by the way. Uh, she's a poet too. Um, she found out that these women poets from Argentina in the 80s were using the symbols of carnival and mask in a total opposite way. As a way of avoiding from you to show your true identity to living on the closet, to living in hiding. So it was a kind of oppression, the oppressive dark carnival of being permitted, allowed to do certain things only if, if you hide your identity. So, so I was uh, highly influenced by those poets who were very related to poets like uh, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, or in the Spanish language, Alejandra Pizarnik. Yeah. Yeah. And now we talk about Borges. Lastly, I would like to mention a wonderful writer from Argentina who was a good uh, friend of Borges. And now is, she's being uh, like um, re-emerging, I understand, in the States, Silvina Ocampo. Yes. Silvina Ocampo, who was not only a bright um, short story writer, but as well a very interesting poet herself, and I was very glad to find that, that she was translated into English a few years ago as a poet. 
and, and in Argentina, nobody reads her, reads her poetry. And then again, the United States has given us back the poetry from Silvino Campo, which nobody reads now in, in, in Argentina, but you are reading it. And, and now we are allowed to, to see it under a different light, thanks to English translation. Those, so yeah, the way that the, that's all connected is always so fascinating and how like people can be rediscovered based on a translation coming out in another country can lead to like a more global movement. I mean, that happened with Le Spectre in a lot of ways not too long ago. Like when um, the Le Spectre books were reissued, there's like a global surge in interest in Le Spectre. Um, so it's very, yeah, it's very interesting how that's all connected. Um, what, there, I have two, two comments. I know that we're, we're, getting, we're getting close to our time, but um, one thing is you mentioned writing about translation, about how translation comes in your books quite frequently. And I want to say that you write very sexy things about translation. Like there's some, <laughs> some way that you write about it is kind of hot. I'm just going to put that out there for people. So Traveler of the Century for sure has a lot of like translation and sex scene. And, uh, but Fracture does as well, has like certain mentions where it's like, there's a, there's like a, 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 a loving like sensualness to translation that comes through in your prose, which I really dig. So I think that, that is like, I don't, know, I don't know where you're getting that from, but I love it. No, no, it's true. It's true because um, I uh, usually get bored of literature, talking about literature when they do it in a kind of a scholar way, like saying, hey, I've got all these pieces of my PhD that didn't, they, they weren't included, so maybe I can write a novel with, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I left out from my PhD. So I think writing fiction is an entirely different thing. Of course, you can be influenced by, by your researches or your classes, but the rules are totally different. So every time I approach a very like theoretical subject, I try to do it with the body. Mm -hmm. You know, that they were, that, that's the thing that I love the most of Roberto Bolaño. Yeah. In the Spanish language, we usually have these two totally opposite models. Uh, the model of the modded poet, you know, like the uh, 19th century French uh, type, like, or the beat generation poet, that kind of idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So you're supposed not to work very hard on your style. You won't be, uh, be name dropping much because you're, you know, uh, drinking at the bar. And again, this is a very like macho thing, you know, like, like uh, Bukowski or, or, or uh, um, Hemingway's um, hard uh, self-restraint thing. Or, you had the Borges model, you know, reading a library within which there's a library, within there's a library, but there's no body at all. Like Borges had no body. There's no sex in Borges. There are only two stories with sex in Borges. And one is very like, uh, not sexy, but violent and horrible. And the second one is very, very prudish and it's with a light off. So literally, they turned the light off. So um, our major uh, writer on literature has no body. And suddenly, what Bolaño did was being at the bar, quoting weird French poets. Yeah. So I've always liked that. I'm not saying he was the first one to do this. But what I'm saying is that he's all... The, the, his entire body of work is built under this uh, uh, attempt to unite the so-called high culture with the very um, um, dirty um, body issues. And so, so I tried to, to uh, develop this idea and, and doing it constantly too. And I've been researching a lot in, in my books uh, about the relationship between love and translation. Mm -hmm. Not only sex, but love. Like, because I think that when you want to translate a text, you first fall in love with someone you don't know in person, normally. 
it's like a platonic right. attraction. There's the desire. There's the uh, longing for that, that voice. There's a kind of need to be closer to that voice. And you start, you start translating it. I do a bit of translation myself, not much. I'm not a pro at all, but I've been translating a few things. And, um, and it's a kind of uh, cohabiting, you know, like sharing your daily life with a stranger that gradually becomes your friend or your love. And sometimes you discover things about yourself translating this stranger. So there's lots of parallels. But the other way around, it works too. Because when, when you find in, in love, uh, sorry, oh, this is a good mistake. Find in love, no, fall in love. I invented uh, <laughs> a phrasal verb, a weird phrasal verb. Um, when you fall in love with someone, you become very attentive to the nuances. You become obsessed with what the other person meant. You yeah. read words, words, language becomes highly important and you're really worried not to understand the frame of the background. And the more you love this person, the more likely you are to misunderstand this person and project your own identity and feelings on the screen of this person. And you get concerned about this, but you develop a kind of addiction to it too. So um, you know that there's like a mutual learning, both people expand in best of cases, but at the same time, you know you're bound to misinterpret and misunderstand the other voice. And those are uh, like uh, concerns and problems you do, have, you do get a lot when you translate. Yeah. So in a way, loving someone is trying to translate someone and failing. And, and translating a text is falling in love with another voice and, and trying to love the best you can and probably failing too. I love that. That's great. The last thing I wanted to ask you is, did you get to go to Japan to research this? Ah, that's a beautiful question. You know, I, I was thinking about that a lot because you mentioned the research. Mm -hmm. And I researched for this book for four or five years like like a crazy person really i almost only read japanese books saw japanese films interviewed people who lived in japan i saw numberless documentaries and then i had to decide whether i was going to japan to take notes i usually do that yeah but i suddenly decided not to because I, I thought maybe I was wrong, but, but I thought if I go there for just a few days or a few weeks, I will get like a touristic experience and I will, you know, pay attention to what everybody sees when they go to Japan, you know, and I won't get any more personal feeling. So I should go there and stay living there for, you know, half a life yeah. or at least for a few years to get a meaningful Japanese experience, you know, learned very good language, which I, you know, studied just a bit for the book, but I should go there and really learn their traditions to be properly influenced by their culture. But if I didn't do that and I couldn't, I decided to have a dreamy idea of the national culture because the character is not a samurai, is not, a green, a green tea ceremony is not someone who always lived in Japan, but he is a Japanese foreigner. He yeah. spent most of his life outside his native country. So I decided to create a mixture between researching very seriously the cultural and artistic sources from Japan and being really far away, hoping that that could get a feeling of half belonging and half not. And what I did as well is researching very much on Kintsugi, this uh, Japanese technique of repairing um, a piece of pottery or whatever by 
by uh, reuniting the fragments with gold powder in order to emphasize the cracks instead of hiding them. And I thought it would be nice to apply this idea of a thing being more beautiful and having more value after being broken. Yeah. This could be applied to people, love relationships and politics. Very true. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. Well, hopefully they'll translate the book into Japanese and bring you on a big tour. They are. You know, this is the most exciting thing. Let me tell you only this and, and we close. You know what? I was really concerned and, and scared about how the Japanese might react to my book because even though I read thousands of witness, of witness from, from, from people who were there, you know, with the bombings, and I saw numberless documentaries and, and, and all that, and I really tried to absorb all the best Japanese art in order to learn a little bit more about it. I was terrified yeah. about, you know, saying silly things about it because I'm a Western person who doesn't understand the culture, which is true, by the way. And, uh, and then they buy the rights in Japan for the first time in my life. Wow. I mean, all, all the rest of my books were not acquired in Japan. And interestingly, inter interestingly enough, they bought this book. So when the translator wrote to me, I asked him, look, if there's something that sounds, you know, like stupid or out of frame or unlikely for a Japanese character, please do correct it because, because you know much better than me. So don't, don't be uh, too uh, faithful to what I wrote if I made mistakes. And he said, you know what? Maybe there are, you know, three or four small details that I will uh, adjust because maybe a Japanese reader won't, won't feel them quite right. But most of it, what surprised me the most is that the book says things that we don't feel comfortable saying here. It's politically incorrect. Yeah. Because you seem to have written them without knowing they shouldn't be said. So he, in a way, found it liberating, not because I know better than him, because obviously I don't, but because I was coming from the outside. So I could name or observe or say things with a kind of innocence and that mm -hmm. innocence he found it in a way useful because i didn't know who what the um what the taboos were really yeah so i, w I was right to them without knowing it so sometimes you know a stranger can uh, uh, teach you things about yourself and that's why we love fiction and traveling i suppose totally agree totally agree that seems like a perfect place to to end today too Yes, I agree. Um, thank you both so much. It was such a privilege to sit here and listen to you talking. Oh my gosh, what a great conversation. That was really fun. Thank you, Andres. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really had a great time and I wish we can do this again uh, in person, ideally. And, and when I, I really miss you, Chad. I really want to, to see you, not this way. <laughs> but in, in real life yeah it'll happen soon it'll happen sooner than we think hey and maddie please send us your links yeah i will both, I definitely illustrations, will. both the illustrations and a few stories i promise i will please, please all right well i'm going to close close our conversation thank you all so much for listening andres newman's new book is fracture and it's out from fsg check it out Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.